to FOSS and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host, who is driving, Morgan, and my co-host, who is holding the microphone, Chris. All right. Well, we're doing this one from the car again because we thought if we didn't do it and just like did it off the cuff, we might just not do it again because I probably would overprepare. It's probably what would happen. Yeah. So, um, this is a topic that Chris spent a good amount of time yesterday writing up a, uh, mailing list post about, and then we figured, let's do a podcast, because it doesn't hurt to publish your thoughts. Yeah, and I I think that we'll, we'll get into more about why it's really important to publish, which is very, actually, on topic here, but the topic is not about publishing here. The topic is about disease, pandemics, and two different kinds, right? And hygiene. And hygiene. Um, So it's mostly about computing hygiene. But we are in the middle of a pandemic. It is 2020 while we're recording this. And it's really easy to draw parallels. Yes, it is easy to draw parallels. And we're going to start this off, I guess, with some history that's uh, even much earlier than 2020, perhaps with enough lessons that it feels like we should have learned them by 2020, and we haven't yet. So Morgan's going to actually, Morgan is the person who likes to hear about kind of disturbing medical history. So I'm going to let Morgan give the introduction. Like, what can we learn historically about disease and people not paying attention or etc.? Just just inform us a bit. What does this have to do with germ theory? Tell us about germ theory. Well, we're actually starting off before germ theory was codified. Um, we're starting off in the 1840s with Ignaz Semmelweis, who was an obstetrician. And what's an, what's an obstetrician? A person who delivers babies. Okay. Just, you know. Sorry, sorry, sorry. A doctor who delivers babies. Because there's also midwives in this story. That's right. And they, they were doing this work before the doctor swept in, right? Maybe actually it turns out doing it better. Possibly. Might actually be relevant to the story. Yeah. So, for a good chunk of history... Midwives were women who were not doctors, but their job was to deliver babies. And typically they were women who had had babies themselves and then uh, found a, a career in delivering other people's babies. And typically the education for midwives was apprenticeship, right? So you have a baby and then you apprentice under another midwife and she teaches you how to deliver babies. So it was largely um, word of mouth. It wasn't a formal education in the way that doctors are, and even at this point, were trained. But at the period we're talking about, things were heading more towards standardized medical practices, which is good overall. Um, Doctors were starting to do more, um, and doctors and surgeons were starting to kind of coalesce a little bit in their practices. And so at this point, hospitals were starting to be a more common thing. And there was a push for women to start delivering babies in hospitals instead of previously it would have been done at home with a midwife. Um, And Ignaz Semmelweis was an obstetrician uh, in Vienna 
who was in charge of basically a free clinic for uh, delivering babies. And there were two clinics. One was run by, um, or one was staffed by doctors and doctors in training. The other one was staffed by midwives and midwives in training. And to a modern audience, if you hear that, and you're trying to decide which one of these clinics you want to have your baby at, you would probably think, well, doctors are going to be safer, right? Let's go to the hospital, honey. Like, this is going to be much safer if we go there with all the professionals, right? Yeah, but Semmelweis noticed a trend, and that was that instances of purpural fever, which is childbed fever, were much more drastic in the clinic that was staffed by these doctors and medical students, who I will point out at this time were all men, as opposed to the clinic that was staffed by midwives and midwives in training, who were women. And when I say a marked difference, it was like, you know, a 4 or 5% chance of getting appropriate uh, fever if you were giving birth at the clinic uh, staffed by midwives and like 15 to 18% chance. So, so like at least, like, yeah, like it's like somewhere between double, triple, maybe quadruple, basically. Ridiculously scary odds if you are a woman who is about to push a baby out of your body. And, and we should know that this was like known... Like, this, this word had gotten around to women who were pregnant, who were like, oh, uh, mm, where should I have my baby? Um, I, I really don't want to be assigned to the hospital, right? To the point where, you know, women were trying to figure out how to basically give birth in the street and stuff like that, right? So, or were electing to give birth in the street as opposed to having a doctor um, birth their child because there's a almost 20% chance you would die of purpural fever. And then your baby would not have a mother. Right. So that's pretty horrible. Um, so why did get things get so much worse when that, you know, like if this, the experts had swooped in, you know, like, and, and this is like the, the dawn of the modern medical age. Things should be getting better, right? Presumably. Well, at this point, they still believed in things like humoral med- medicine, where, you know, all all illnesses were caused by an imbalance of the four humors, which I'm not going to get into because it is a complicated and, quite frankly, ridiculous uh, medical structure. Ridiculous, at least to us now, today. But if you didn't know that there were more uh, scientific methods, then, yeah, that's what they knew. So, um, Semmelweis tried changing a bunch of different things that didn't really help at all. And then one day, um, one of his colleagues, a professor, uh, died from something that was suspiciously similar to purpural fever. And as I said, the physicians were men, so the issue wasn't that he had just given birth. Uh, But what had happened was he was doing an autopsy, and during this autopsy, one of the medical students had nicked him with a scalpel. that had also been cutting into a dead body. And Semmelweis is like, huh, there might be something transferred from the dead body that is causing this purpural fever. And at this point, they didn't understand, like, germs 
or something like that. It was, it was, I think, a, a cadaverous agent or something like that, a cadaverous element, something transferred from a dead body that would also kill living bodies. Um, so not quite getting the concept, but close enough that like. But but wait, hold hold on, enlighten me. Why would these part cadaverous particles or cadaverous? I don't even remember what you said. Cadaverous something or others even get into the other environment like what what was causing that well now uh, and especially in 2020 we understand the importance of washing your hands right we understand that germs exist and if you don't wash your hands and you can transfer germs from the counter at the grocery store to your hands to your food to your mouth and in- incorporate that into your immune system right but at that point uh this wasn't a known thing. So at this hospital, um, they would do autopsies on people who died because it was a teaching hospital, essentially, and they were training new doctors, and that's how you learn about anatomy, right? You you want, for like medical purposes, you want autopsies, right? Where if we're going to improve medicine, we want autopsies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so autopsies are good, but since... They didn't really have an understanding of germ theory at this point. They didn't realize that you should wash your hands between doing things. So if you're a doctor and you're doing an autopsy and there's a woman who's going into birth, that baby's not going to wait for you to finish the autopsy. So you would go from the autopsy to delivering that baby without washing your hands. So Semmelweis realized that, hey, we might be onto something here and instituted a policy of at those two clinics, both of them, um, that they would wash their hands before uh, birthing babies. And the numbers went down from, like I said, 15 to 18% chances to like 1% chance. And this is really great because this is the part of the story where, uh, uh, how do you pronounce it again? Semmelweis? Semmelweis. Uh, Semmelweis uh, tells... Um, the world, uh, look at this thing I found, everybody's relieved, uh, the dawn of germ theory begins, uh, and everyone gets better, right? Nope, that doesn't happen for, like, another couple of decades at least. Oh no! So, um, there's a few reasons for this. One, Semmelweis never published, or at least didn't publish until, you know, much, much later, um, about his findings. So, he, he did try to convince people, but hadn't published in medical journals, allegedly, right? Yeah, he hadn't published a book or in medical journals, and he wasn't a fan of conference presentations. Um, so even though he was invited across Europe to go and talk about his findings, he didn't want to. So instead, he sent his colleagues and medical students, and they talked about it. But then you have kind of a telephone game situation going. If you have a publication, you have a source that you can cite that says, okay, this was the procedure that they used. If you have presentations, you know, and we're definitely in a period of time before you could have recordings of presentations, then the information doesn't get conveyed in quite as concise and scientific of a manner. So, because of this... um, people across Europe got excited about the findings and tried it out, but with mixed results, because 
they didn't they didn't understand fully the methods that were being described for hand washing and cleaning instruments and stuff like that. Yeah, there was not appropriate documentation for people to reproduce the results. Okay, so um, so my understanding is that uh, he gets widely discredited and becomes very bitter and starts kind of losing it later in life, basically? Yeah, and eventually he starts, like... He eventually does publish uh, a book about it, but in that publication, he, after decades of people um, discrediting his work, is somewhat relatably frustrated and therefore a little bit bitter, and it had been years and years and years since the initial case studies, so... His publication wasn't quite as scientific as you would normally expect for a medical journal, and so it wasn't widely credited. So, so there are really two effects going on. You could say towards the end of his life, this is basically, uh, he's hit the Cassandra complex, yeah. right? But there's another effect that's going on here. Uh, what's the name of the other effect, in fact? Uh, we would now call it the Semmelweis effect. So, so what's the description of that effect? Basically... He had come up with something that was factually true and evidence-based. Like, there was evidence to show that this is what was happening. But it's not what we're doing today. Washing our hands? Hopefully it's what we're doing. No, no, no. At his time, it's not what we're doing today. It's not what was common at the time. And there was this kind of idea of this is the heroic period of medicine, or maybe we're not even quite to the heroic period of medicine. I I am not a historian of, of medical history. Um. But it's close enough that, like, let's, let's focus on that heroism thing, because also, he what he was saying was considered an insult yeah. to experts of the day. Because they were trying to save lives. The, getting women to deliver babies in hospitals was an attempt to do a more medically rigorous job of delivering babies because you can't control the conditions in someone's home the way you can in a hospital, right? Wait wait a minute. So I'm the surgeon here. I'm the expert. I'm saving people's lives. I'm performing all these surgeries and you're saying I'm coming in here and making people sicker? That I'm the vector for people getting sicker? I'm insulted. That my hands are the thing that's transferring this disease. How dare you? How dare you? (laughs) <laughs> that is quite frankly insulting. So, um, the Semmelweis complex is where you have an idea or criticism that is factually correct, but people um, don't want to believe it because it questions the uh, the the socially accepted norms. Right, and and it may feel like an insult to those who have been working very hard. And let's let's give some credit to the surgeons here and sympathize with why it may be hard. Right, so it may be hard for them to accept that. Um, you know, there is a sexism, right? You know, okay, well, there's these other women who are doing it, right? Yeah, pff, the women are doing it, right? So, but but I mean, let's let's also give credit that they, as in terms of surgery, they were. Um, the experts and the most experienced, they had the most experience of a wide variety of medical practices. So it, it is, you know, so it's therefore, it does make sense that they would say, well, I'm, I'm coming at this with, a, with the, being the most experienced people in the field. So, you know, I must be right, right? Yeah, and it's, it's also understandable that if someone, um, as Semmelweis did later in his life, sends you a letter saying that you are a murderer 
for not washing your hands. And, la- and later on, he did call people murderers. Yes, he did send he did send some very angry and strongly worded letters to people, basically to to other doctors who were um, discrediting his his research, telling them that by not washing their hands and by not te- like teaching their students not to wash their hands, that they were in fact murderers and uh, perpetuating the deaths of all of these women and other people because, you know, as we know now, giving birth or, you know, being the doctor who is birthing a child is not the only time in medical practice that you should wash your hands. Right. So um, we've said that hopefully germ theory would be sufficiently understand. And we, we're thankful for those who did do the early work on germ theory yes. where we would not. Thank, thank you, Louis Pester and Joseph Lister. We appreciate your work. Uh, and uh, wait, I forget the wo- name of the woman who did all the statistical work. Uh, we will link her in the show notes because I'm blanking on it at the moment. But also all the midwives. Yes, who- thank you to all of the midwives. Who, who were washing their hands also in their practices as part of it. Um, and so we were thankful um, just because I think it was part of the process. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I seem to remember that that well, was part of it. at the very least, they weren't performing autopsies. They weren't performing autopsies. That's right. Um, yeah, um, so, well, and so that actually also speaks to kind of a separation of concerns, right? Part of our understanding in germ theory now is that we would say, you know, there's probably a long understanding in history that there are biological processes that you don't mix, right? Uh, We can put, uh, you don't X where you eat, right? And I'm pretty sure that phrase is probably newer than germ theory, but now that we have germ theory, we understand why we don't cross those boundaries, right? We don't cross the streams. Even though they're all part of a, 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 a same process, you know, it's all part of this cycle related to eating and uneating, you still don't want to cross the streams, right? Okay, so let's let's talk about modern computing. What I hope is related to modern computing germ theory and how we can get ourselves out of uh, the pandemic we currently have in computing. Yeah. So, so how how do you how do you classify this as a computing pandemic? Well, okay, you know, it's pretty easy to start thinking about it as a pandemic if you think about you know, well, we've got viruses, right? So viruses are pretty well accepted as being uh, a computing thing, right? We're willing to accept that term. Mm-hmm. Um, and viruses we think of as like malicious programs, where something bad might happen on your computer for malicious reasons, right? Uh, but the, the bad things can happen sometimes because somebody wrote code that was supposed to be dangerous, but also sometimes because of accidents. You know, there's bugs that accidentally destroy your data. There's also... Um, there's also bugs that can be abused by outside people who, you know, like, for example, the Heartbleed incident is a famous example of a bug that um, was not intended to allow people to steal all of your information, but could be used so that people could steal all your information, right? So that, that's, a, that's an example of a vulnerability that's unintentional, right? Um, and uh, there's also things like phishing. Right. So, uh, um, you know, I direct you instead of the paypal.com, I direct you to paypal1.com. And it's very hard for you to be able to tell the difference between those things. So you get fished. Right. Um, And uh, there's there's all sorts of things. uh, We're not going to focus as much on the phishing, but um, it turns out um, that 
though that is solved by some of the things we're talking about that are in this related area. But it turns out that all of these things are dangerous things that they're basically computing sickness, right? Our computing environments and the users on our computers are not in a healthy environment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's not too controversial of a thing to say, right? So It's not too controversial of a thing to say until you get to the how dare you, sir, of well, people who are creating the these, you know, programs. Right, and I get sympathetic. I, I am sympathetic for people who might get to the how dare you, sir, after spending their lifetimes trying to explain the that we do have fixes for this, right? Um, and, uh, but but let's say also, so what we're going to talk about as um, a better solution is object capability theory and how that's the equivalent of germ theory that can make us have a much safer world. Like to the point where, um, so just, just as an example right now, um, with even having learned germ theory, we're not claiming that nobody gets sick now that we know germ theory and pro- such processes, right? Not a claim that we're making today. No. Um, so, uh, but what we do claim is that knowing germ theory allows us to develop better processes where sickness happens dramatically less often and can be contained and dealt with dramatically more easily, right? And individuals can practice good hygiene to prevent themselves from being sick. That's right. So today... We are going to talk about hygiene and, and also separation of concerns, a don't X where you Y. Um, even if, again, it's go- we're going to find out it's all part of the same process and there's a way to live where you can do both X and Y, um, but you don't get sick because of it. Yeah. Right? So um, you're telling me that there's basically two worlds here that we're going to look at. So there's the descriptive identity world versus the command world. That's right. So um, so let's let's think here. Um, so if anybody who's ever played an old text adventure, you can think of there's a part where you're saying what your character wants to do. You know, like, you know, take, take lamp, right? That's kind of like typing in a command. Uh, and you're saying what, what you want to happen, right? And then there's the description of the world of what's happening, right? And similarly, um, there's also, you know, I'm writing code that says I'm going to do this thing next, right? I type something in my command line, do this thing next, and then I get some information back about what's happening. Or, you know, um, so that's that's much more the command world. And then the identity world is like, well, you and me, we have names, you know, Morgan and Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, we introduce ourselves at the beginning of every podcast. That's right. Um, we make claims about things. We make claims such as germs exist and can make you sick if you don't know how to blow up. That's a claim, right? Um, and... The thing is about claims and stuff like that is they involve a certain amount of like a judgment call, right? So there's this world of command and kind of authority, the things you want to do and the things you can do. And then there's also this world of um, and them actually happening. And then there's also this world that's kind of retrospective that's like, um, you know, well, who are these people in the world? What have they done? Um, You know, maybe I wasn't there. Could you tell me whether or not? this happened, you know, and do I believe you, right? So these are two different worlds and they're related to each other and they tie in with each other all the time, but they're two different worlds. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, um, what happens when you cross the streams? If they're related, then that shouldn't be too catastrophic, right? Well, we said, uh, don't, sometimes you don't want to X where you Y, right? Yeah. Um, so here, 
um, the, 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 the crossing streams danger is where you say, and it's an easy mistake to make. So let's, let's see how we might make this mistake. I say, Morgan can drive the car, right? Morgan is driving the car. Right. Morgan is driving the car currently. I can verify Chris's statement. And also up until like this moment in history, in general, the car was not scanning your face and saying, aha, this is Morgan. Morgan can drive, right? Um, it, there was a different mechanism. So it's not the case that identity has to be tied to um, whether or not you can do things. But the fact that I'm saying Morgan can drive the car might make you think, well, if I'm going to design a system, in order to find out whether or not the person who wants to do this action, such as dr- drive, is going to be able to do it, is based off of their identity and information I know about them, right? And, and like that's actually very understandable because the way that we're describing the world is in terms of identity and speaking to each other. So it's very understandable that that we would accidentally build our system on top of that thing. Um, and again, being able to talk about things is useful and important and critical since we're not gods. We can't just view everything. Given that, um, the world where you do combine these things, where the car scans your face, says, aha, this is Morgan, and Morgan is authorized to drive the car, is called uh, access control lists. There is a list of authorized users or authorized entities of certain groups, let's say, or roles or things like that. You know, like Morgan can drive the car or Morgan's in the car driving group, right? Um, Therefore, sure, let's let Morgan drive, right? Um, And then the the car turns on. Um, So uh, it, it feels like this isn't so dangerous. Why is this so bad? Well, let's start thinking about what happens when I run Solitaire on my computer. Um, Well, Solitaire shouldn't be a very dangerous program, should it? Theoretically Uh, not. Except that Solitaire is actually an incredibly dangerous program on my computer. Solitaire can upload all my private keys. It can upload all my, like, it can upload all of my documents somewhere. Um, It can delete my documents or it could you know, steal all my, my bank credentials, steal all my money through that. It can steal all my Dogecoins, right? You know, I don't actually have Dogecoins, but if I had them, it it could steal them. Um, and, uh, it could also even crypto locker my hard drive, right? It could, it could basically encrypt everything. And some malicious person could say, Hey, you know, sorry, haha, we pwned your system through a vulnerability in solitaire. And now you have to pay us some money. Otherwise else we're going to delete all your files in 30 days. Right. Um, so that, is scary and dangerous and I'm terrified to run programs on my computer very frequently. I don't know about you. Um, Also, like, we're told things like don't open documents from people you don't know. There might be viruses in those documents. There's an alternative world where you could open any document and actually even run any executable that somebody sends you and it could be safe. Yeah, So tell me why um, I shouldn't pull a Ron Swanson and throw away my computer and all of my other devices because they're spying on me. Okay. Um, Well, you know, I mean, I do feel like that sometimes. Um, But the the answer is is that basically we do have an alternative, and it's object capability security. Um, So, uh... Yeah. Sorry, I went off script there. (laughs) No, it's okay. No, that's... uh, So it's applicable. Yeah. Um, Right? You know, like, it's... the, the applicable thing here is we're so scared of our computers that you might want to just basically 
throw it in the trash and just say, you know, I'm going to live off the grid. But that's not realistic. That's not the world we live in. And computers should be here to help us. And we've done that to the extent that we can, right? Because if it's open source, it's secure, right? That's our equivalent of throwing away our computers. We threw away our Microsoft computers. So this is a popular phrase, the free and open source software community, and it has a minor amount of truth to it, right? Like, and it's actually not completely minor, right? So there's, um, we think that free and open source software is more secure, and in general it is, And but why is it more secure? So one thing is that you can inspect and modify it, and knowing that people might inspect and modify things might make you more honest, in theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it also means that, um, so as in terms of vulnerabilities, it does tend to be better, because the ability to inspect and modify means that more people can find mistakes and errors, report them, and help fix them. And especially that last one, help fix them, is really important. But in terms of vulnerabilities that are, uh, sorry, actually, I should especially say uh, malicious code that's inserted, but it's also true for vulnerabilities, um, free and open source software won't save us. So a good example of this is, and we will link it to it in the show notes, but copy... Ka Ping Yi's PhD dissertation, he was giving a dissertation on secure voting systems. And in this secure voting systems dissertation, he's like, well, how can we program these things such that we know that they're safe? And so he made a little Python-like programming language, found some of the best security experts in the world, and wrote programs, some of them with vulnerabilities, some of them with fairly easy to find vulnerabilities, some of them with medium to find vulnerabilities, and some of them with intentionally very obscured hard vulnerabilities. It was very hard to find the easy ones, very, very, very hard to find the medium ones, and not all of them were found, and nobody could find the hard ones. And so you can insert vulnerabilities, and I am fairly certain that modern free software operating systems have probably do have such malicious code inserted to them because we know that there have been attempts to do it to, for example, the Linux kernel in the past. Um, So it's, we can't assume that free software is going to be safer. The other thing that has kept us reasonably safe is that most of the people participating in free and open source software have normatively believed in trying to improve the agency of individuals and keep people free and that this is not the kind of thing you want to do, right? But a very easy example of where this might not be the case is the event stream incident that happened in NPM where, um, so we're going to link to Kate Sills' article on this, which is wonderful, about the event stream incident and uh, and and she does a really nice job explaining how this a different paradigm, the principle of least authority, could have saved us from it. But in the event stream incident, basically somebody took over an old package called event stream, and they inserted code that then basically stole people's uh, credentials that allowed them to have money on on Bitcoin, basically on, on blockchain. So they basically stole money from developers, right? And they might have stolen other things if they could get their hands on them, and um, and so. Uh, in that scenario, you could even say, well, the event stream virus that was inserted into that event stream library was open source. It was an open source virus. Technically, under free and open source software copyright rules. Anyone could have found it. They just didn't find it in time. Yeah, so it took a while for it to be found. I don't remember how many, if there was actual reported cases of people's 
keys being stolen or not, but it, it was at least found out that it was uh, capable of doing it. But anyway, so we can't just say that free and open source software is going to automatically save us, right? Because that's a pretty clear indicator that it's not going to automatically. So free and open source software, it, it helps. It's part of the solution. It especially helps us build collaboratively more robust systems, but it's not a sufficient solution itself. Mm-hmm. So um, you said earlier that the solution is probably OCAPs. So what are OCAPs? So OCAPs stand for Object Capabilities. Originally, they were just called Capabilities, but then it turns out some other things appeared that were also called Capabilities. Uh, For example, POSIX or Linux, things that are called Capabilities aren't. They're actually closer to access control list systems. Um, So if you you hear Capabilities and you think about those, don't think about those. Uh, Kenton Varda calls those Crapabilities. Um, so, uh, not capability. Those are not what we call nowadays object capabilities, which is a way to kind of distinguish them. Um, so, object capabilities. Um, so, I guess what you're really asking is, how do we think about them? Like what? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, how are they going to save us? Yeah, and and, and what are they even like? Right. Yeah. So, um, so I think in order to understand how they can save us. We need to um, be able to have some mental model. So we know that identity-based authority is not going to be good enough. The car scanning your face, you know, whether or not that's going to be a problem with the car, I'm, I'm not going to pay too much attention to, but we noticed that it didn't help us in the case of Solitaire because Solitaire ran as us. It had all of the authority as us to access our file system and et cetera, right? But... Um, there is a physical metaphor that we can understand in the real world, which is like a baby step of the way to understanding. And that's also car-related. Uh, Morgan, how did you turn on and start driving this car? I inserted a key into the ignition and turned it. Okay. Well, that's kind of like a capability, right? So that, so the, the key thing here, haha, key thing is that um, it's possession or reference-based. You know, you've got a hold of something that's letting you do it as opposed to the identity. The car doesn't know who you are. We don't have enough of a smart car. And I'm kind of grateful We're, for yeah, that. We, we appreciate our dumb car. Yeah, we don't want our car to be that smart. And it isn't. Um, so because of that, um, it doesn't know that Morgan's driving or that I'm driving or that anyone else is driving. It's just, you know, okay, good enough. You got the key. You turned it. You're, you're good to go, right? Um so OCAP people often use this as an introduction, um, and it has some benefits because you can also say, well, you can delegate. Consider it a feature in OCAP land. I can delegate and say, uh, you know, well, if we want our friend Dan to be able to drive a car, mm-hmm. we can make a copy of a key and give it to Dan, and now Dan can drive the car, right? Or if you're out somewhere um, hanging out with your friends and you sprain your ankle and they don't have a car there but your car is there you can hand your keys to them and they can drive you to the hospital that's right otherwise also you might be like put me in the car um hold on i need to spend five minutes accessing this thing right especially if you like got a brain injury or something like that that's not gonna be very helpful um so uh so so yeah delegation is useful um so it's also possible to attenuate which means to reduce the power so some cars I've never had a car like this, but some fancy schmancy cars have valet keys, and those are where like you hand the you hand out a key that can't do as much. So like maybe a key that um, 
you can drive the car. So you've got some, you hand it to this, uh, you know, this teenager you don't trust. And the teenager drives your expensive possession somewhere. But they can't open the glove box and take whatever they want out of there. They can't open the trunk. Um, They also, you know, maybe in a nicely designed valet key system, maybe they could only drive it five miles. Right. So you can limit the authority. Um, So uh, that's 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 one thing we could do. Um, uh, Now, we can also imagine doing other things with keys. So imagine that we put like a fuse inside of the key and we had a wireless device with a button. We could press that button and it short circuits the fuse and now the key no longer works. Right. A self-destruct button. Yeah, that's right. So I could use my key as a template, make this other key, um, and now I've got a way to revoke it. So I could hand it to Dan, and I say, you know what, Dan? I don't want. I don't. Dan has been really rough on our car. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. If you're listening to this, yeah, Dan. Like, legitimately sorry, Dan, for yeah, using you. Because I think Dan actually listens to the show. We we love you, Dan. <laughs> um, uh, we but but I could take away Dan's access um, to the car if I wanted to, uh, and I do consider that a future that I have the option to right. Uh, we could even do something. You could imagine constructing a key system where um, I hand out a key to Dan and it is actually programmed in such a way that when Dan turns on the car, you know, the car actually, I say, hey, with this key, every time Dan drives, make a note of who drove, associate this key with Dan. So Dan turns it on and it's now logged in there. And I'm like, who who left you know, like, who drove the car and didn't refill the gas tank? Dan? Right? Really, I'm sorry, Dan. We just started using you as an example. I'm sorry. Dan is great. Uh, Dan, I'm sorry. Uh, the, but, but, but at least we'd have a way to do that, right? So now, so now and that's, that's compositional. Like, we're, we're composing it with another service. Um, so object capabilities are like this. They're possession-based in that you, and you can do all these other wonderful things with them, and they're very powerful in that way. Uh, and actually, you can't do that all of those things quite as easily in an access controller system. You might be able to do it, but it'll be harder. Okay, so I've given you a very long-winded example of the key metaphor. So, um, was that, that was a pretty good baby step example. Like, that makes sense, right? Okay. So, um, let's, let's, let's upgrade. Let's graduate a little bit. Um, so it also turns out that links, like URIs, URLs, as they're called, um, those also can be capabilities. So you've probably used one of these. Um, so, sorry, I'm going to mention some proprietary software here. You could do this with... So actually, I'll mention two options. So either you're using maybe Nextcloud or you're using uh, um, maybe Google Docs, which is probably the more well-known version, um, or even many video conferencing services nowadays um, might generate a random-looking URI or like a bunch of silly-looking words in it or just... You know, like it looks like a bunch of gobbledygook, and uh, you can hand that, copy and paste that to somebody, and just by loading that link, they're able to access the same document or whatever as you, right? So you've probably seen these, and you can yeah. like um, say like hand out read write access or just hand out read access and stuff like that. So yeah, that's a capability. And one nice thing about this capability example is that it actually combines. The previous example, we separated the car and the car key. This one actually just teleports you right to it, um, which is what OCAP people call not separating designation and authority. In general, preferable. Sometimes even OCAP people separate designation and authority. They do it via something called rights amplification. But uh, not an important concept to get into today. 
But the cool thing is, is we can do something where just the reference itself is not only lets us access the thing, but brings us to the thing. Um, am I making sense so far? Yeah, for the most part. Okay. All right. Okay. Is there any part that I'm not making sense on? No, I think you're making sense. Sorry. Sorry for diminishing the amount of sense you were making. Oh, no, I, I just, you know, I want to I wanna make the maximum amount of sense possible. Okay. So, um, so there is a problem with this example, though. And it's that uh, an ideal object capability system, the capabilities should be unforgeable. And by that we mean you can't just get access to something by kind of forcing your way into getting it. Um, now, uh, with the capability URIs, it's very unlikely you'd be able to force your way to get it because the random elements of it, the random string or maybe the random words, are so hard to guess that you'd be just basically smashing together random combinations for so long that you'd be um, wasting a lot of resources and the service might even kick you off before you get very far, right? Yeah. Um, so we call that unguessable instead of unforgeable. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it turns out there is an unforgeable example we can think of. And in fact, it's the best, most delicious form of object capabilities available language and here I mean programming language capabilities ah basically like argument passing so this is like so now I want you to imagine that solitaire so this is this is more useful I guess for people who have been programmers but let's say you have some sort of function or procedure as we might call it um, that we call solitaire but let's say we open this function in a sandbox that's so cold and um, cruel that it has no access to draw things on the screen or read and write from your file system or make noise or listen to your microphone or your camera or read and write your files or your read or write from the network. So if we call that solitaire function, uh, is it going to crypto locker my hard drive i don't know well it doesn't have access to my file system so how would it right fair point so no okay yeah so it wouldn't right is it gonna display um, is it gonna listen to my microphone again it's put in an environment where doesn't have access to the microphone right exactly it woke up in a cold and alone world so it couldn't have done that right so now let's say well it can't even actually display to the screen. So this is not a fun version of solitaire, right? So we're, let's at least give it that. So we call this other function, which does have the ability to make windows on our computer, which we have access to at the moment. And uh, we make a window with a canvas for it to paint onto. And we give it the authority to listen to our keyboard and our mouse, but only while the window is active. So it can't key log us. And it can't write to other areas of the screen. Only its own specific thing. And we say, you know, make a new canvas window. And it returns that thing to us. And we pass that in as an argument to solitaire. Well, now the solitaire function has access to that thing. So now it can use it, right? Yeah, it's in solitary confinement. (laughs) Ha ha, solitary confinement. That's actually, I'm surprised I've never heard an OCAP person make that pun before. Solitaire e confinement. That's really good. Okay, great. Um, so, do you? But you play solitaire sometimes on your computer. I do. Um, do you sometimes like to compare your current game of solitaire to how well you've done in the past? 
not really because I don't do very well at solitaire, but I'm sure some people do. Oh, okay. But in some other games you do, at least, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, so, but, so in, we, you at least know that some people want a high scores file. Maybe it doesn't matter to you, but some people do, right? Yeah. So I could create a capability, not to my whole file system, but I could call this function that says open, and I've got my, you know, in my home directory, a solitaire.txt file. Now I've got a solitaire high scores file variable, and I pass it into solitaire along with the window um, output and input uh, um, object. Now it can access that too. But can it crypto locker my entire file system? No. Because it only has access to the solitary confinement area. And specifically the, the high scores oh, file. The high scores file, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the high scores file is the only one on the file system it has access to. Right. So that's actually probably good enough for solitaire. We don't need it to access the microphone or anything more like that. And this is what OCAP people call the principle of least authority. And it's very hard to do this on access control list systems. Um, but it turns out you can even make your own whole operating system this way. If um, when you started out your solitaire program, now we're going to say it's not just a function, but maybe it's like a, a program, an operating system process. And when you launch it, um, and we're not going to care too much about how you do it, but you wire in the ability to access that one specific file, and the uh, um, and basically write have that one screen. Well, now um, we can even have those different processes maybe have their own capabilities, pass them between each other, and there can be cooperation between different programs, but only as much as those programs are willing to cooperate with the stuff they have. Does that make sense? That does. Okay. Finally could even think of our programming languages working like this even better, where um, right now, in the event stream incident, and this is what Kate basically says, uh, the event street library was able to reach out and grab access to the file system and the network. Well, if instead your modules were like functions and they woke up in this cold world, you could pass in access to the file system and blah, 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 blah. So there... Um, now, there's more to this than that. If we think about these like objects, it basically means that when you create an object, it has access to stuff that's in its initial conditions. A functional programmer might say, in its lexical scope. An object-oriented programmer might say, whatever it was given in its constructor, right? Um, uh, more, close enough to the same thing. Uh, but then to get access to more things, it needs to be invoked with access to other things, and it might accumulate that over time. Uh, some functional programmers might turn up their nose. Uh, that's a monad, effectively. Um, and everybody else who can, hates monads can ignore that I just said monad. Um, and uh, finally, it could also create other objects, but only with the kinds of effects and authority it has access to. But it could combine them in new and interesting, fun ways. So that's object capabilities. That's what they are. They are possession and reference-based authority. And what's so cool is it's a way we already program, basically. So how do we bridge these worlds? Right. So we can't escape identity. You and I are going to talk about each other, right? I'm going to say Morgan should drive the car. And maybe if, um, you know, the, you know, first of all, example, when we got the, it, it, like, 
if we're buying a car and we're speaking to the dealer, I sh- I might say Morgan should get the car, and you know maybe the, the dealer decides, oh okay, legit, I'll hand this to Morgan, the person I think of as Morgan, right? Mm-hmm. So we're not going to escape language, and we're not going to escape identity, we're not going to escape descriptions, right? Um, we're also not going to escape that a police officer might pull you over and say, you know, what are you old enough to drive? Do you have a driver's license, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we're not going to pretend we can escape all of that, um, but we can build a beautiful world that combines both of these things. And we can, I mentioned monads earlier, and to look at for inspiration. Um, and I know some people are going to be like, I'm not into functional programming and the word monad scares me. So uh, I'm sorry if that's the case. But there is something cool from the functional programming in Haskell world is that they did something really interesting. In theory, the, the functional programming world is afraid of and against things like beeps and boops and displaying to your computer and all sorts of things like that and reading and writing from the file system, more or less all the things we want, which you'll notice is very similar to the object capability world with all those effects. But um, they figured out a way to do this somehow. How could Haskell, which doesn't allow any of those things, they don't allow what they call state changes. They don't allow their world to change by time. Everything's supposed to be timeless, like beautiful mathematical functions. You call them double function with two it should always call it, it should always return to. It shouldn't start returning other things. No, that's a double function, right? It can't change. But they need to be able to work with a world that changes, a world that beeps and boops and has new information written to its file system and stuff like that, right? So the way that they deal with this um, is they construct this beautiful city and they say, ah, it's the pure functional city. No state, no side effects here. No, no, no. We don't allow those things. But it turns out, since everybody wants the things outside that they consider a wasteland, right, of beeps and boops and display and stuff like that, they've done something very clever. Smugglers? Not smugglers. They actually, although that's clever, um, they actually create an authorized system to deal with this whole thing, and it's called... Privateers. Closer. It's called the Monad Highway. At the one end of the city, they have a place where trucks bringing state and effects and everything may come in with their information. Then it goes through all the carefully constructed tubes and pipes of the, mo- of the functional programming city. The truck drives along the Monad's highway, and on the other end, it leaves with its output and returns to the wasteland of effects and state. And that's how functional programmers manage to bridge these two worlds. So we're just going to do something very similar uh, with our object capability and identity worlds. We are going to construct a highway of our own. We're going to say inside of our beautiful city of just command and authority and reference-based integrity and blah, 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 blah. We are not going to defile ourselves with such notions of identity and descriptions and so on and so forth. But in reality, uh, everybody actually wants identity and descriptions and they're all on the outside. But we know that mixing them with this world will, it'll ruin the beautiful parts of this uh, OCAP land. And that's why everybody in OCAP City uh, appears to be allergic or at least claims to. Um, but uh, the, the way they, they, uh, um, the way they, they, they deal with this, with the outside world, is they just steal the same idea that those uh, that those functional programmers do. 
they've got a highway. They call it the Horton Highway, basically. Um, and it's their system for bridging in uh, inputs of uh, giving uh, authority out for initial handing out of authority. And then on the exit is where we uh, revoke authority. It's basically the entrances and exit points for authority on this system. And on the outside of that world is where all the identity stuff happens. But it turns out you can have these inputs and outputs. You can have hooks throughout the whole system. So um, I feel like this is really abstract. Do we need an example? Sounds like Border Patrol to me. Well, that's really harsh. Uh, I am not pro-Border Control. Um, they're not actually inspecting. Actually, these highways are set up. Um, we're not inspecting identity at the borders, actually. The highways are set up to um, allow for entrance and exits uh, in a way that, that's very intentional and, and does not actually analyze identity right there. But right outside of there, yes, there might be some identity checks and stuff like that. But um, let's we can't escape identity. We can't escape assertion. So what we're going to do is let's look at an example um, with... Uh, Maybe getting somebody hired for a job? Yeah. Okay. Relevant. Right. Okay. Okay. So um, let's say our friend Alice claims to be a sysadmin. Carol needs a sysadmin. Um, should Carol hire Alice? How might, how might Carol decide whether or not to hire Alice? Like, what would you do if you were... If somebody says, well, I should be hired, what would you do? Uh, I would look at their CV, maybe call their references... That's right. And that's very identity oriented, right? Like that's that you're looking at, you know, like maybe the diploma, right? And that's a university yeah. saying, hey, uh, I believe this person has a computer science degree. Um, the CV, that's also, you know, I'm claiming I had this prior work experience. References, that's also people making claims. Of that. So that's 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 on the outside world of things. But that so so you're completely right. And that's exactly what Carol is going to do. So Carol says, I, as far as I can tell, I trust and I judge that these things check out. So I'm going to hand Alice authority to now access the computing system, this beautiful computing system I have. So what am I going to do? I'm going to hand her a capability. So now at the entrance point, having passed that realm of judgment... Carol passes Alice a capability that allows her to administrate the network. Now, how does Alice... So now Alice can use that to administrate the network. But we might think, well, wait a minute. If this isn't identity-oriented, how can we know whether or not... How can we hold Alice responsible for her actions? So we could associate this capability with Alice... And say, just the same way that we talked about associating the car key with Dan, mm -hmm. so that when Alice performs certain actions, we associate them with the person we think of as Alice and it's registered. And Carol has a capability to basically review that log. Mm -hmm. um, so, so oversight. So Carol can have oversight. She ha we can build oversight into our systems. These are not exclusive, right? Um, and if Alice is a great sysadmin, that's probably as much as you need. But if Alice, let's say Alice started secretly mining Bitcoins on Carol's servers, um, then Carol might wonder why her bills have gotten so high on her computing resources. She might fi figure out that it's Alice. Um, and then she might decide, you know what, I, she makes a judgment call on identity at that exit point. 
even though the computing system doesn't make, say, ah, this is Alice, ah, this is Alice, therefore Alice can do these things, it allows Alice to do the thing based on the capability and then maybe registers it as being from Alice, um, it is able to, um, Carol is still able to make an identity judgment at the exit and revoke access in kind of the ways we've talked about before. Um, and we can compose those. I mentioned functions earlier. You can think of building such a thing out of a function in that um, we can uh, we could build a function that uh, instead of having Alice the access to be able to just do something that we might think of as like root access, we might make another function that wraps around it that we do hand to Alice that basically triggers that log every time, right? And uh, it might have some flag in it that Carol holds on a capability that can basically flip the switch that stops forwarding the method calls that uh, Alice is making to the rest of the system when Alice is doing it. So we can do the whole thing using capabilities, but we saw an entrance and an exit of that system. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. All right. So so what so what's next? What are what what what's next on the thing is how did this happen? Yeah. Um, how do we get here? So why is it? So this is this is kind of strange. Like we could say that capability systems are more immune to these problems, and we can even say we can see that Solitaire wasn't able to access and do dangerous things in the capability system, even though it was in the access controller system. But why is it architecturally in our universe that this type of thing happens? So let's think about how our universe is constructed a little bit and the notion of time. Okay. So right now we're driving in a car. Yeah. Um, right now, uh, right, right now, you know, we, I have to figure out uh, how, let's say we were buying this car right now. We're at a used car lot or something like that. Mm-hmm. So for example, maybe let's say that I'm a used car salesperson. You want to decide whether or not to buy this car. Um, you might need to know whether you might want to know, uh, well, what kind of things would you want to know about the car? Let's, let's simplify the car first of all, to something we can very easily think about. Um, this is going to be like a spherical cow type of car, right? An abstract concept of a car that's extremely reduced to things that are easy for us to think about. Mm -hmm. So, um, it does have a gas tank and we can't see the gas tank the car is sealed shut so we don't see how we can't inspect visually how much car is in the gas um Um, you might want to switch that around how much gas is in the car oh yeah yeah how much gas is the car we can't inspect visually how much gas is in the car how much gas is in the 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 tank Mm -hmm. um nonetheless in this car is there a way for you to see theoretically how much gas is in the tank yeah there's a gas meter i can see it okay a gas meter it's just over half a tank Okay, great. Um, and uh, you haven't been around for all the time this car has been driven. You've been around for part of it, but we did buy our car used. So um, how can you tell how many miles does it has on it? Well, there's a handy odometer right there. Right. So if you're buying this from a used, a used car salesperson, um, you might want to be sure that you're able to drive it far enough to the next gas station, you know, like and that it doesn't stall out right past the lot. Um, and you also might want to make sure that um, you're not paying too much for it and that it's within a mileage range that you consider acceptable, right? Yep. So um, 
in our simplified car, um, what's let let right now you're having to trust those two things, right? So if I wasn't if there was an unscrupulous used car salesperson, what they what might they do to just get you to hand over the cash? Well, uh, they used to when there were like not manual but physical odometers, you'd roll back the odometer manually. You could just use a screwdriver. Yeah, you could just use a screwdriver. Now, uh, on this particular one, it's a computerized display. Which somebody could still tamper with, but it's, I guess, maybe a little bit less likely, but it's still quite feasible. Yeah. Um, and uh, likewise, you could do a similar thing, right? You could mess with the springs and stuff and affect the, the fuel gauge, right? Yeah. So, okay. Um, so you're basically or having... You could, or you could dilute the gas, too. Right. So I guess in that case, if you were buying this car used, you'd be trusting those those two systems and you'd also be trusting the salesperson that they didn't mess with them, right? And that yeah. they're saying that they're authentic and not tampered with. Yeah. And you're also actually kind of trusting not just the salesperson, but whoever the salesperson got the thing from because they had to trust somebody. Yeah. That, which would be like, who, who does the salesperson have to trust? The person who sold them the car. Right. So there's a trust chain here, basically. Yeah. Well, well and theoretically, some sort of uh, some sort of inspector, hopefully, or right. mechanic. So these are like verifiable. So the, these are there's a spec called verifiable credentials, and it used to be called verifiable claims. The name that the reason the name got changed was that um, what we're really verifying is who set made the claim. Right. We're not verifying whether or not the claim is true because we might not be able to know whether or not the claim is true. But we're able to make a trust judgment based off of uh, where things are at. Um, so uh, at that point, um, you still have to make some level of trust. But maybe there's an alternate way that uh, we could do things. Uh, what what fictional character might be able to help us out? Oh, now we're looking for Time Lords, right? Yeah. So if we search for a Time Lord, if our neighbor the Time Lord... Uh, um, if we were buying a, a used car, a really ideal thing would be to call up our neighbor, the Time Lord, and say, hey, uh, could you come over here? And she could drop by in her blue box, and we'd hop in the blue box, and we'd travel all the way back from when the car rolled off the lot. And if we could observe every time the car was driven, and uh, we could simplify this to say, you know, maybe every time the car is turned on, it immediately starts driving, drives the exact same amount, and uh, um, until when it turns off, consumes gas at an even rate, and uh, um, and we can observe every time it's refilled, right? All of that information um, would give us a perfect view, even without being able to see inside of the car at exactly where the fuel level is at and what the odometer should say, mm-hmm. right? You know, how many car miles the car has actually been driven. Because mm-hmm. you could re- replay time. Um, we don't live in that universe, so we have to make identity judgments based off of these types of things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need identity and we need judgments and so on. Um, but um, you could go th- at things from the opposite direction. So what's really interesting here is we don't have that. So we do have to make a judgment call, right? Like, mm, well, it looks like this person hasn't lost their license to sell cars or whatever. You know, these reviews seem to be good enough on this thing we're not buying a car out of the back of a uh, car wash which we almost did once and we decided not to do it good Uh, job us yeah but uh um 
we're, we're making judgment calls and then kind of deciding statistically how much we're willing to roll the dice. Well, and that's, that one we didn't buy was partially because he was making claims that we couldn't verify. And he had made claims, and then when we showed up, we saw there were obvious things he omitted mm-hmm. from the claims. He didn't lie, actually. He just omitted certain information. Yeah. Um, so we did make a judgment call, and we did buy a car based off of that information. Um, and uh, that's what people have to do, and that makes sense. Um, but we can, when we're constructing computing environments, we're constructing some sort of world, and we are able to construct something that's relatively safe, right? So a major advancement in computing happened around the time that there was this paper called, uh, um, I always forget how to pronounce his name, uh, Jaichka, uh, Jaichka? I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm butching it. But he wrote the paper, uh, Go To is Considered Harmful. Um, I think he wrote the paper. I'm going to look really embarrassed if I got the wrong person and mispronounced their name. We will edit it out if that's the case. Yes, but regardless, the, pa- the paper go-to's considered harmful said something really interesting. Prior to that point, there wasn't this structured form of programming where, you know, you were calling functions and they did something and returned, or even you had objects and you uh, um, invoked methods and they did something in return and stuff like that, right? We, um, you know... We didn't have something as nice as the lambda calculus or uh, the uh, actor model that we were using as our foundation. They, those, those things existed, um, but were not very popular. And the decision to move past go-tos and just global mutation was a major step forward. As system designers, we should be what object capability people are really saying is take that and take it really seriously. Treat um, Lambda and Lexical Scope. Those are your authority systems now. Lambda, the ultimate security authority model, right? So if we take our systems really seriously, we can build things that are much more predictable, that do the things we think they're going to do more often, which is really does advance user freedom because then I'm less afraid to use my computer and I can do more useful things. I, as a user, am more empowered if my, I can believe that my computing world is safe. And right now, I am afraid to use my computer every day, right? I can verify this. Right. <laughs> Morgan can verify this. I get so nervous about the state of computing. Better computing options are possible. And uh, those of us who are... Um, in a capacity to push for them and build them should, and even as users, you should demand them. You should demand object capability security. You should demand that uh, when it's available, that we go down these paths and that they become more and more available. So, okay. Long Chris Weber rant over. Yeah. Um, maybe we need to pull this back because I think we, we really transition into the Chris Weber rant. Yeah. So I think uh, there's a lot of things going back to the beginning of the episode that we can learn from Semmelweis. And Chris just gave a very long example of one field. But I think that uh, these, these there's three lessons from Semmelweis that I think are more broadly applicable. So the first one is if you discover something, if your research discovers and 
shows evidence that something is true, you should publish it. Um, one, because then it's out there and you can disseminate it to other people um, and spread the word. And if it can help humanity, then it can help humanity that way. Whereas if you it just lives on your computer, then or in your code, but no, someone no one's going to know that unless they like shuffle through all of your code, um, then it's not going to save the world by right. making them wash their hands. So publishing, it's important, right? And there are computer science journals and mm-hmm. places where people can publish um, papers and also publish code, right? Yeah. Publish free and open source software code. Or publish a podcast episode about it. That's right. That's right. Um, so that's lesson number one. Yeah. Uh, and uh, what, what are the other lessons? So lesson number two is about how you, if, if you've got an idea that maybe um, is counter to the currently held beliefs by many experts in the field, then... You have to be careful about how you talk about your things. So you have to kind of um, introduce it gently. If you go around writing letters to your colleagues telling them that they're murdering babies, they're going to be less likely to listen to what you're saying. And they might have you committed to a mental asylum where you die from, ironically, a very similar infection to the one that you were trying to prevent. Although we can be sympathetic where if you spent your entire life trying to tell people, please don't touch, don't touch. I've, I know that less babies and women will die if you wash your hands, hands. if you just wash your hands after touching corpses, that eventually you'd, you'd start to really lose it. Right. Like I'm very sympathetic to that actually, but, but, but we, we would like people to not have to get to that point too. Right. Yeah, so if you come, if you've if you've got a verifiable uh, like evidence-based theory that you think can contribute to the world, then publish it, but also in your evangelism towards it, remember that uh, people don't always take to change kindly, especially if the change that you're you're proposing suggests that what they have been doing their entire careers is not only wrong but harmful. And what's the final one? And the final one is to kind of compartmentalize things and keep them separate. So autopsies, good. They help us learn about anatomy. They help us learn about medicine. They help us learn how people died so hopefully we don't do it again. Great. Being the physician or midwife present uh, at, at a birth, good. You want to help that mother give birth so that they don't die in childbirth. All part of the circle of life here. Yeah, good. We want to have trained professionals, although I don't necessarily agree with Samuel Weiss and his ilk saying that it had to be a doctor um, in a hospital. Uh, but we want to have trained professionals there to be able to deal with emergencies as they arise. That's good. However, if you're doing an autopsy and you have to leave to go to a birth, maybe wash your hands in between because you don't want to transfer any of the, what was it, cadaverous elements? Um, Cadaverous something. Cadaverous anything. You don't want to transfer that. You don't want to transfer cadaverous anything to babies or 
recently postpartum mo- mothers. Right. So you, you, so sometimes you don't want to X while you Y. That includes autopsies and also the, the death and life parts of, of the process. Don't want to cross over. Eating and uneating. Don't want to cross over. Um, and uh, identity and authority. Uh, you don't want to cross over. Even though all of those things... They're all part of the cycle of something where they tie in together. They're duels of some kind, right? And, you know, okay, pr- functional programmers, shout out to you. Yeah, we know. State and change and also, uh, you know, immutability uh, and functional programming. That, those are also duels. You know, maybe we'll find out good ways to do those, right? But but these, but these, it, it does good. It, hygiene is important. Wash hands, save a life. Mm-hmm. Separate, desi- uh, separate identity and authority. Save a user, right? Can, and can I can I tie this back one more step? Yeah, go for it. Um, I, I want to tie this back in with a way that might also help us introduce a future episode guest who said that they would like to be on here and I think plans to be on here. And I know I'm committing a cardinal sin by pre-introducing. Yeah, uh, we keep doing this. I think maybe in... It might be I keep doing this. I'm pretty sure in like over half of our episodes, we've previewed other episodes that haven't happened yet. And uh, mostly my fault. But I, I, I do want to talk about... Um, part of my experience and uh, a mentor the the biggest mentor although there have been many mentors for me on this work right you know we've mentioned Cade we've mentioned uh, um, uh, I didn't mention Jonathan Reese but you know his uh, paper security kernel based on the lambda calculus where all that whole language thing came from Alan Karp uh, and Mark Miller and so many people but I'm I, I'm gonna I would just keep listing names if I just kept going so I'm not gonna do that here we will list some references where you can read more yeah. um but and maybe a list of thank yous in the show notes yeah but mark miller uh, so speaking to some of those prior things mark miller he wasn't the one who started object capability security stuff though he did advance a lot of it and he kind of kept that community going for a really long time and he wasn't the only one but i think he was really carrying the torch and when i first met him at rebooting web of trust uh 2017 i think uh, you know, I was really excited, like, oh, I've heard about your work, and I didn't fully understand it. And he was so excited to just explain the rest of it for me. And he'd been trying to explain it for a long time. Um, and I'm not going to say I was the only one there, because there was a number of people there who got excited. But at the end of the conference, he said, you know, like, he almost, let, like, we were giving summaries, and, and Mark was like, you know, like, I feel like I've been shouting into the wind for, like, 30 years, and finally I'm being heard, right? And And it is admirable that you can keep things going that long and and some people felt like he was really harsh for in this paper he wrote a paper that was called capability myths demolished and he called it myths and he said demolished and and i heard mark defend that and he said you know well that was an intense phrasing but and i'm paraphrasing mark i hope you don't mind the way i'm paraphrasing you but um he said i defend the way that i ended up having that intensity and using myths and stuff like that because there had been somebody else who disproved capabilities. And now, actually, capability theory has mathematical proofs behind it and so on, right? But they had disproven it in very similar ways to that story of, well, we disproved the whole hand-washing thing, right? Yeah. Um, and so Mark had to come in and demolish those myths, right? Similar to the demolishing the myths of hand-washing. And so I am... I do recognize that the things I'm advocating for here... I'm building on the back of research of people who have had to fight that fight and have had to push when the um, 
the most experienced people, the experts in the field were saying opposite things, right? Um, but now we do have the evidence. We do have even formal mathematical proofs that prove that these things are true. So I hope we can adopt the germ theory. And uh, I'm glad that we managed to, I think, get to the point where we're starting to see this stuff, object capability theory, uh, have a renaissance again. And that we didn't have to have anybody committed in the process of uh, advocating this. So, um, so yeah. Uh, Germ theory for computing, germ theory for the modern era, and uh, let's try to get through this actual pandemic as well as the computing pandemic as well, right? Yes, everybody practice good hygiene, both on your computers and in real life. One more thing before we end. We are coming to you with a message from the future. It's no longer 2020 even. Yeah, so this is a few weeks after we recorded the original body of the episode, And we ran the idea for this episode by Mark Miller, who had an important point to make about one of our ending... uh... Discussion items? Yes. The point that Mark made was that regarding the Semmelweis effect, it would be a mistake to interpret it that it's because somebody's not listening to you that you're probably correct. Many ideas many directions are not being listened to in society and that's actually because they're they're not correct right they're they're not the direction that society should go but the difference is evidence so if you are taking an evidence-based approach and nobody's listening to you then you have to do your best to get that evidence out there in circulation right to that end we've included quite a bit of evidence in the show notes various papers Um, ranging from, you know, these are studies of problems that people have encountered, um, solutions that have actually fixed those problems, the reasons why they're systemic from uh, an analytical point of view, including even mathematical proofs and formal methods-based approaches. So please go read our receipts and check our evidence. Yep. All right. Goodbye for real this time. Thanks. Bye. Boss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, in Milky Tracker and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community hash Foss and Crafts on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free and stay crafty. I might be about to be pulled over. Oh. I think I did what I needed to do. We're not putting this one in the the blooper. Probably.
Maybe they're also creeped out by these red lights. What are they doing with that device? Should I stop recording and we'll resume this once you feel more comfortable? Um, yes, please. All right. <laughs>